We're back. And for the first episode of the Good Future podcast for 2022, I have Sally McCutcheon joining me on the show. Sally has been a vital leader and catalyst for the growth of impact investing. After a career in investment banking and consulting, she took on the role of CEO of Impact Investing Australia, an organization dedicated to growing the world of impact investing right here. And that's what we're all about here on the Good Future Podcast. I'm your host, John Treadgold, and I'm asking the big questions about the business of sustainability, the new economy, and how your spending and investment decisions can have an impact. We go deep in this one. We discuss Sally and the team's hard work to try and get an impact wholesaler off the ground in Australia. That's a work in progress, and Sally explains the huge opportunity there. But we also look forward and dig into the exciting news that Sally will be bringing the influential Bridges Fund Management to Australia. They're already raising their first private equity fund and running the impact ruler over companies poised for growth. Bridges was originally founded in the UK by Sir Ronald Cohen and Michelle Giddens. Those two have both been guests on the show previously, so you can wind back and hear more about their journeys and the work that Bridges does. All right, so let's get into it. You can find all the show notes on my website at johntreadgold.com. And if you enjoy this one, please do jump onto Apple Music and leave me a review because that will help more people find the show. But now, nothing left to do but dive in to my conversation with Sally McCutcheon. Here we go. Sally, great to have you on the show today. It's been a long time coming, so thank you. Thank you, John. It's really lovely to be here. It does feel like a long time coming, so really nice to actually finally have the conversation. Well, that's it. I'm really excited to, to talk about your background, your career, and all the work you've done building up impact investing in Australia and then, and then also look ahead to the future with all the exciting things you've got on the boil. But look, to get started... Let's wind right back. In a piece you wrote previously, you said that when you were young, you wanted to be a doctor, but instead you ended up in finance. So what happened? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I I reflect on career advice that you get at the time as a young person and how that can actually really influence your life. And my uncle was a doctor and my aunt was a radiologist, so she was very good at physics. And they said to me, are you never going to be able to be a doctor unless you're really, you know, fantastic at physics? And that was not my best subject at school. So I thought, oh, well, that's not going to be for me and I'll have to start looking at sort of other avenues. And at around about the same time, my dad got a posting in Indonesia on an island called Bunker where he was working as an accountant. And that was a very remote location. It took kind of two hours from the central airport there, which was a light sort of a a small aircraft to get to the central airport to actually get to where he was working. So I spent probably um, three years of holidays there. Mum and I stayed in Australia. And, you know, that exposure to a developing market at 14, which was when I first started going, actually also changed the way I, you know, kind of saw the world and also enabled me to see other opportunities that were available. So I went from wanting to be a doctor to actually wanting to join the diplomatic service, um, which also didn't transpire, but it led me down the path of the economics and finance degree. And that's ultimately led me to, I guess, do what I'm doing now. 
Yeah, I look very interesting. Now, reflecting on that, I mean, I've, I've, I've got a, quite, quite a similar um, history myself just in terms of, of discovering development work through travelling to Indonesia myself, actually. And, yeah, always appreciating that and found myself studying economics because I think perhaps it was the same with you, just wanting to understand how things work and, and finding economics was a really good pathway for that. Um, and then I think, you know, mid-career for me, went and studied um, international relations and international law, and that's when I found impact investing. And before I roll on to ask you that question, when you discovered impact investing, I'd love to, to understand this next stage. Your horizons had been broadened. You'd seen the rest of the world. You'd realised that not everybody lives like we do in Australia. You know, where did you head when you left school? You, you'd sort of pushed medicine out of your mind, um, where did you end up? There's probably another piece to that story, which is the reason my dad ended up in Indonesia. And what happened was we kind of went from a middle-class sort of family existence to he semi-retired and invested our money in a business and his partner wasn't the most honest person in the world and, and we ended up all our money, all, you know, a lot of our savings um, no longer being there. And that's why he took the job in Indonesia. So there was a kind of a dual thing going on. There was the developing world thing, but there was also the desire that I never wanted to be in a situation when I, where I didn't have money. And so that kind of led me to a path of, or I guess, studying economics, but also studying finance and wanting to make sure that I got a job that actually also, you know, made me very secure. And so I ended up studying economics, working initially at Accenture in the management consulting area, and then going back and doing a postgrad in finance. And that took me into, I guess, the world of investment banking. And I started at what was um, Pottle Warburg then as an equity research analyst. And then that ultimately has become UBS. And, and I went from there to um, funds management at JP Morgan Investment Management. So I kind of pursued the path of making sure I had a lot of financial security. And then I got married and we had the opportunity to actually um, go with our family to Singapore, which was um, for my husband's job. And so I left my role in funds management and we just upped the family who then were three, five and six. And we went and lived in Singapore for five years. And that sort of reignited um, wanting to be in Asia and that whole developing market piece. And I probably should say when, when I was in funds management, I didn't just say, you know, I don't care about people and I don't care about all I care about is money. What we did um, at, at JP Morgan, which ultimately became um, Citigroup and, and then Leg Mason, was we were looking at sustainable products. So we started to um, do some of the first evaluation of ESG factors at that time. So it was never never like I just don't care. As I said, it's all about money. It was also, you know, thinking about in this context, what are some of the ways that I can still do some things? You took this opportunity. You went to Singapore. Uh, was it an opportunity to reassess your career and where you wanted to go with it? I mean, I think perhaps people find that that a big step to take and they don't take and they, and they sort of stay where they are and get a bit stagnant. But, but for you, it came upon you and, and off you went. What was your thinking at that stage? So that's exactly right. So it was, a, it was an opportunity to reassess. And one of my frustrations in funds management was that you spend a lot of time working out whether to invest in a company, but you don't spend a lot of time actually changing companies. So ultimately where I ended up 
in Singapore was working for Accenture and working in a role that had a cross-region, as in, you know, APAC, cross-sector focus. And it was looking at what were the key drivers of company value, which included shareholder value and stakeholder value. So we'd do this analysis and we'd, then we'd go and present to potential clients to Accenture or existing clients to Accenture and just talk about what are the things that they needed to do to operationalise their value outcomes. And so when it came to, we did a piece of work, for example, for the Health Department of Singapore. So when it came to the Health Department of Singapore, it wasn't about the economics necessarily, it was about the stakeholders and health outcomes. And I worked with the sustainability team in Singapore Accenture to do some of that work, although I have to say at that time in Asia, a lot of the large conglomerates were not that interested necessarily in in the sustainability aspect, but some clients were. And so we embedded that into the analysis. So we started, you know, it was the beginning of really starting to understand, I suppose, more the operationalisation of the sustainability aspects. So I did that role for about four years. And then we came back to Australia. I mean, that's interesting. You spend all this time valuing companies but not changing companies. And then you roll into consulting where changing, even if it's not companies, organisations is is the core of it, right? How do you feel about that influence of of consulting companies these days? Have they, just a bit of a tangent, but have they taken hold of this potential to, to drive change? I think selectively. I think one of the challenges for many companies, and I'm not, if we take Australia and the ASX as an example. So I think the top 50 companies are much more aware of the the need to make some of these changes and know how to do it and have employed people to help them to do it versus say the, you know, the next 150. I think many people are still struggling to understand how they make the changes. And that probably leads to the bridges conversation, because I do think that, you know, one of the things that we can do is help people on that journey, help companies on that journey to actually, you know, be able to implement some of the change that is needed. You know, it's all very well to sort of talk to people about, oh, you need to do this and you need to do that. But, you know, it is very difficult to take like a high-level strategy as I kind of discovered through the whole Accenture and funds management process and actually implement and operationalise that. And where a lot of strategies, I'm sure you know, fail is in the implementation and operationalisation. So I think there really is a role in terms of, you know, trying to help companies through this process. Let's roll back and follow your journey because I'm really enjoying this sort of chronological approach to, to your evolution towards impact investing. And, and you uh, you left Singapore, left Accenture and, and, and landed back in Australia. What happened then? I had the opportunity to keep doing the Accenture role and I did a little bit of that sort of on a part-time basis, but it was actually quite difficult from Australia. What we did before we came home is we went on a nine-month trip with the kids around you know, South Africa and, and different parts of Europe. So we had a sort of a natural break and we'll talk about that another time, but that was just a fantastic thing to do with kids in terms of opening their minds. So then we came back to Australia and I thought, right, I really want to start to focus more on purpose because a lot of the work I'd done, you know, was quite fulfilling at some level, certainly intellectually, but, um, but from a purpose perspective, I really felt that piece was lacking. And I thought I had a good combination of skills to to do that. So I did what I think many people do when they come back home. They have lots of conversations with lots of people. And a very good friend of mine, James Van Smeerdijk, was working at PwC at the time. And he 
literally the day before I met him, had a conversation with um, Rosemary Addison, Dan Marvin. And so I'm, you know, sitting there saying I want to do something that's more purposeful and my background's investment. And he goes, oh, I've just met these people. They're into this thing called impact investing. And so I met up with Rosemary and then Dan and they said, oh, you seem like, you know, quite a good person. <laughs> um, we're doing this project. We've got this working group and it's related to trying to bring a wholesaler into the Australian market to do, you know, to support impact investing. And I had no idea what all that meant, but I said, okay, I'll, I'll, you know, volunteer with you and I'll help you with this working group sort of one day a week. And that was kind of the beginning. And so I worked on the, the wholesaler with a working group of just fantastic people. So, you know, people that I'm sure you know and have spoken to like Polly Charlton and Andrew Tyndale and David Bennett and Craig Shapiro and Steve Lambert and obviously Rosemary and, and Dan, we came up with this construct for what a uh, wholesaler would look like in the Australian market and, you know, tried to get funding for that. And that's sort of the beginning of the story, but I can get, get into more detail about the rest of the story as we go, if you like. That's right. No, thank you. And, and, and really good to lay that foundation. I'm sure a lot of my listeners know a lot of those names, uh, and they've all they've all been really influential in Australia in, in building this this industry and, and bringing these conceptions to, to mainstream recognition. But at that time, had you heard this word impact investing before? No, I hadn't really understood what it all meant. And the first thing I did, obviously, as you do, is you started reading about it. And the first thing I found was social impact bonds. And I think a lot of people at that time were really defining and thinking about impact investing as social impact bonds. And they were very small. And as someone that had come from a big public equities-based fund and a balanced sort of fund, I'm looking at a sub $10 million transactions, thinking how are we actually going to change the world doing things of this size? And so I thought, I'm not sure this is, this you know, impact investing thing is all going to work. But then the notion of different types of uh, asset classes and actually, you know, getting something like a wholesaler up that would that would help to seed funds that were doing different asset classes like property, like um, private equity, things like that. When I started taking a look at, for example, the UK and what had then happened there with other funds, I thought this is a kind of a no-brainer in terms of policy. And this this market, you know, where there is this joint focus, particularly for investments that don't compromise financial return, this has got to be ultimately the future of investing if we can make it work. Early scepticism, but then when I actually thought about the, you know, the potential across the different types of investment and did a bit more research on that, you know, I was a research analyst, so I can't help myself, <laughs> then it became clear that this could actually be really, really significant. Yeah, so interesting that your first reaction was that, oh, we need to scale this. This isn't going to work if, if there's no scale. And that's still a challenge today and, and seems to have been perhaps the driving force behind all of the changes you are, you are trying to make. And you're there with Dan and Rosemary um, trying to build a movement that would eventually become Impact Investing Australia. But, but what, what happened initially? By the time I got there, it already was Impact Investing Australia. So Rosemary had, had established the company with, with Sandy Blackburn-Wright. She was Australia's representative on the GSG, Global Steering Group for Impact Investing. And I sort of was one year after that. So I was kind of, you know, late to the, to the party. So that was already happening. And that's why the working groups had been established 
if we go back to the history, there were kind of three key working groups. One was about what ultimately became the Impact Investment Ready Growth Grant, which was a grant that supported early stage social enterprise. So that was addressing that piece of the of the market, there was the wholesaler working group that I was involved in. And then there was the one that was looking at um, investor demand and impact investment product in the market at the time. So that was the one that Fabian Michaud and Richard Branwiner actually led. So there were those three key things that were going on through those working groups at the time, just looking at different ways to actually enable and, and help the market to move forward. And then I guess the thing that, you know, I continued to be really involved with uh, was the wholesaler in terms of prosecuting that case, but also obviously Impact Investing Australia. We were successful in in getting the government to fund the growth grant. And that's, I think that's been a, a really, you know, it's quite small, but I think it's been a really important piece of the ecosystem development. So there was already, you know, I mean, Rosemary is an extraordinary person, as is Dan. So they were already driving um, a lot of things before I got there. And, you know, I can remember saying to Andrew Tyndale, and I feel like you guys have been doing this for such a long time and I'm so new and I don't really know anything. And he said, you are very early to this and you're going to look back and you're going to be one of the people that kind of, you know, started this. And I said, no, that's not going to happen. And here we are. And I think, you know, people do probably see me in that way in some way. So. It's interesting, isn't it, how you perceive yourself at a particular time and then um, here we are now with the with the market still evolving and, you know, more new people coming on all the time, which is fantastic. Definitely. No, no, I mean, and I can echo that at a, at a much smaller scale myself of discovering this space. And, and I think, you know, when I asked you, had you heard of this term impact investment, perhaps you had a similar reaction to me where I didn't know the term, but it, it sort of instantly made sense. At the time, I was I was sort of on an internship, you know, working on international development projects, having taken some time off from a from a role with a, a big funds manager. And so, when I heard impact investment, it was suddenly it suddenly brought these two sides of my world together that I thought would would always remain separate. And so, you know, I then too discovered the likes of, of Dan Madivan and, and Rosemary, and they, and they were really welcoming and discovered this this community right? and this group of really smart people that had seen a similar problem to me. And so I think that's how it helped to build. And, and, and while, yeah, at that point I, I was so naive and felt right at the start and now get to have conversations with people like you and, and feel like I'm now contributing to building the space. And that's very interesting that those three prongs were being dealt with in terms of the grants for the, the social enterprises. And, and we've seen that be effective and, and so many exciting startups launching all the time. You've then got investor demand, you know, Ria's doing a lot of good work covering that, but then you've got the wholesaler and, and you said that was your, your watchful eye. Tell us about that progress. What did you work on and, and where are we up to today? Yeah, so she takes a deep breath as she answers this question. <laughs> so what became very clear quite early, so we had this great plan for how we would mobilise a wholesaler in Australia. And we realised that government was a key part of that. So when I mentioned Steve Lambert before, so he was working then as the head of debt capital markets at NAB, and he was instrumental in, in getting NAB to support potential funding for the wholesaler. And Rosemary and I also had a conversation with Ian Narev when he was CEO of CBA and ended up being involved with um, Simon Ling, who is also the head of 
Debt Capital Markets CBA. And those guys came together. We had a term sheet, which they'd sort of committed to in terms of putting money into the wholesaler. So that was something that we were really proud to have achieved because we never thought that we'd be able to do that with the banks, but they were really keen to see this happen. And, you know, hats off to people like Andrew Thorburn for supporting that. The next thing was to get government because the banks were coming in on the basis that, you know, similar to what happened in the UK with Big Society Capital, that the government also came in. So we realised that we needed someone that was really strong in government relations and policy. And that's when um, Sabrina Corotolo came into Impact Investing Australia because her background is in international development, but later on in, in policy. So um, she came in as the head of government relations and we started to have the conversations with government. You know, we met Scott Morrison when he was treasurer. We met Kelly O'Dwyer. We've Jane Hume, we met in her first day in, in parliament as a senator, and she has been a fantastic supporter through this whole process and um, has really tried to, to help us to get the wholesaler up. But it's been, you know, very, very challenging. Um, Jane helped to get the task force up, which obviously, you know, Michael's chaired. And even though we can't talk about the contents of what's in that report at the current period of time, I'm sure it wouldn't surprise you to know that there's some strong similarities between what Impact Investing Australia has been advocating for for a long time, like a wholesaler, and what is ultimately in that report. We continue to prosecute the case. Um, we've even had conversations, like I had a conversation with the Prime Minister and David Cameron, who got obviously was the Prime Minister of the UK, that got the um, Big Society Capital up there and Cliff Pryor, who used to run Big Society Capital, and we still haven't been able to get traction with the wholesaler. I don't really know why. I think it's a fantastic piece of policy. I think it you know, could really drive the market forward. I think, you know, the government needs ways to actually address some of the social issues that are more sustainable and, and do lend themselves to impact investing. But for some reason, we have not been able to get traction. Mm, there's so much there. And, and there's also a lot of names and a lot of concepts that um, I'd, I'd like to dig into. And, and maybe just to break this all down and, and to set the foundation for understanding where we want to get to, what is a wholesaler and what do you hope it will achieve from this uh, financial mechanics side of things? So one of the issues as a new fund manager in a market is that people will go to you and say, you don't have a track record. Even though you know you can have years of investment experience, as a team, you may not have a track record and it makes it very difficult to get institutional support. So you would know that the economics of funds management are such that you need scale of you know funds under management to actually make the thing work. And so you've in this conundrum of it's very difficult to get an anchor investor to seed your fund because you're a first-time manager, but equally it's very difficult to run the fund if you don't have enough money under management to sustain it. So one of the roles of a wholesaler, and this has particularly been the case in the UK, is to actually seed new funds. And so, you know, in the case of, you know, Michael, in the case of Bridges Australia, we would have gone along to the wholesaler, presented what we were trying to do in terms of, you know, build new funds for the impact investment market and potentially, not necessarily, but potentially got that seed money from the wholesaler. And it just means that you've kind of got to step up. People feel more confident because the wholesaler has done the due diligence on the fund. So the notion of what the wholesaler is trying to do is support new funds and potentially existing funds um, to enable product development and funds development 
in the impact investment market. So in terms of why it's helpful from the government's perspective, so if a government puts a certain amount of money into the wholesale, let's call it $10, and then someone like the banks puts in money of the same amount, so that's multiplied the government's capital by two, and then if the wholesale then puts, you know, 25% of the capital into the new fund, well, then that's effectively multiplied the government's capital by four because then there's another, you know, 75% that others put in. So it's a great multiplier effect on government capital in terms of actually putting the money into impact investments, but it's also a way of actually building the market. I hope I haven't made that too complicated. But the notion is that it's there as a way of actually supporting market development through supporting fund fund development is a very simple way to say it. Yeah, no, no, thank you. I think that's great. And going deeper, in terms of the support itself, is that a loan, you know, when they seed the fund itself? No, it's it's just it would be the same as, you know, if it was a unit trust structure for the fund, it would be the same as just contributing, you know, being an investor in the unit trust structure. So the idea would be that the government's capital would be on the same terms as, or that the wholesaler's capital would be on the same terms as everybody else's. Okay, great. And you mentioned Big Society Capital from the UK, founded by Saron Cohen, um, who also founded Bridges. Maybe you could talk us through that example of, yeah, the, you know, the Big Society model, and then that will neatly roll into uh, talking about Bridges. So Bridges was something that the UK task force prosecuted for quite a long time in the UK to try and get that up. And they got traction, as I said, with David Cameron when the UK was president or just before the UK becoming president of of the G8. They were very interested in the UK at that time about the notion of big society, which was essentially, you know, the government and the social sector and business all coming together to create better outcomes in society. So Big Society Capital was created with money. It actually came out of the, let's call it almost a settlement of some of the issues with the GFC. Four of the banks in the UK, along with the government, ceded Big Society Capital. So as I said, we were trying to get a similar sort of model here. And that has gone on to grow. So that started with something like £600 million as its capital base. And that's gone on to create around about Three billion in terms of transactions and impact investments. So it's had a strong multiplier effect. And the way it's done that, as I was describing before, is it's actually seeded funds that were investing in impact investments. So they have a range of different types of investments from an investment in in the Bridges Social Outcomes Fund, which is different from the fund that we're looking at doing here, but it's a it's more like a fund of social impact bonds. They have investments in property, social property funds. So looking at um, a fund that's doing social and affordable housing. They have investments in private sort of equity type funds. Um, So it's across different asset classes, but the consistency is that all of the funds are there trying to drive out specific types of impact. So, um, So that's been, yeah, really successful in the UK. It's really helped to drive the market. And it's, it's a self-sustaining organisation. Well, that's right. All of those layers, you know, it's a market mechanism that is has really clear outcomes measurement, all leading to try and have better social outcomes. You'd think that based on, on the rhetoric of, of the current government, that, that that would be the perfect model. You know, it matches with so many other 
policy avenues. You know, I can tell in, in your previous discussion there that, that there's some frustration about, about the lack of progress. You said you did have some meetings with government, and I'd love to, to try and spark your memory and take you back to that room. When you talk about these concepts, when you say things like impact investment, social impact, and, and all of these pieces, how is it received? You know, I can imagine politicians have lots of meetings and 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 maybe they listen intently, maybe they don't, maybe they're, you know, just thinking about the next meeting or or the, the current crisis of the moment. How did you find that? How did you find that it, it was received? So I think it depends on the on the person. So I, I actually think, you know, and I can't really speak for you know, the Prime Minister of the country, but I, I actually think that, you know, what you can say about the Prime Minister is that when he was the Minister for Social Services, he actually did do some stuff in that was, you know, thinking about some of these things. So he set up the, the Try, Test and Loan Fund and he he was quite interested in social impact bonds and, you know, NIFIC's been set up to help support the social and affordable housing. So I know you know, we set up a meeting for him with Big Society Capital when he went to the UK when he was treasurer. So it's not that I think there's disinterest. I just think it comes back to, you know, government priorities. And if you look at the political landscape, you know, the government is very interested in job creation and things that can, you know, directly point to this created X number of jobs or this will create this policy will create X number of jobs. And I think it's much more challenging when you have something that is conceptual like the wholesale. It's hard to say the wholesaler will create X number of jobs because you're not sure where the wholesaler is actually going to ultimately invest. And so it's hard to actually put those specific metrics against this kind of policy. So I think that's where some of the reluctance might lie. It's also quite difficult to understand from a public um, announcement perspective that's also a bit of a challenge in terms of being adopted for policy. The people that understand it, like Jane, um, like Jane Hume, think it's, you know, great and fantastic and, you know, extremely necessary. So I think if people take the time to actually understand it, you know, I think the sort of money that we're asking for is relatively small in the scheme of the government budget and it talked about before the multiplier effect is enormous potentially. Um, relative to, you know, what other government policy might do. So, you know, for us, it's really clear. But I think, you know, it's quite a difficult thing to sell into government for, you know, the reasons of messaging and that connectivity to specific government metrics that they're trying to drive. I think you're right. I can imagine priorities there are stretched. And as you said, you then roll it out to, to the announceable and it does become an ecosystem builder, right? And so, uh, as you say, having those quick wins are, are difficult to measure and, and, and difficult to announce. Essentially, what that comes down to is we're in, we're in a, a bit of a sense of limbo. The Social Impact Investment Task Force, headed by Michael Trail, uh, has a report that we're hoping will be released, but we're not sure when. The interim report came out a year or so ago. People can can have a read of that and see where it's up to. So that one will be a uh, one to come back to if and when the report is released. It'll be great to, to get into some detail there. But what we have more clarity on is that Bridges is coming to Australia and you're going to be leading it. So tell us about that news. So the backstory is that um, many people probably know that Impact Investing Australia is the representative for Australia on the Global Steering Group on Impact Investing. And as a part of that, I was lucky enough to meet Michelle 
Giddens and, and that's also, you know, through Rosemary's involvement in that. And I've known Michelle for a while and as we were going through the task force process around the wholesaler, it became, you know, it's become clear for a while that we're actually going to have to do this and go first and not, you know, continue to wait for a wholesaler to make this happen. I started talking to David Bennett and Peter Murphy, who are fellow founders, about 18 months ago about, you know, how we might do that. And we came and I said, oh, look, I'd really like to do a private equity fund. And, you know, I think the way Bridges does it, their sustainable growth fund is exactly the kind of thing we should do. And they said, well, you know, why don't you talk to Michelle? And so we had a conversation with Michelle, like just an initial conversation, just talking about that. And and then sort of arrived at the notion that maybe we should be bridges here. Maybe that would be a, a more effective way to actually go in terms of, you know, given that they've got a lot of experience or 20 years experience in running this kind of fund, it kind of evolved from there. And so we're now at the point where we're about to go and really hit the capital raising trail. We're seeking to raise 125 to 150 mil. The type of fund that we're doing is pure private equity. So it's focused on growth companies that have a purpose and make a profit. And we're looking at revenues of five to sort of 50 and investments of five to 20 for our you know, targets. We're not doing venture. We're doing sort of slightly more mature companies. So companies that are already making a profit. And we see that there's actually a real gap in the market in that space for impact as the market has evolved. We've got Similar thematics to um, the Sustainable Growth Fund in the UK, which is sustainable planet, healthier lives, stronger communities, and future skills are the key thematics. And there's obviously sub-thematics under that. But look, I might stop there. That's sort of a, a snapshot of what we're looking to do. But um, look, I'm really excited that we've we've got this um, happening. I feel really um, happy that, you know, Bridges is a part of it because they do have so much experience. And obviously, you know, we're behind the um, impact management project and that development. So the impact credentials are fantastic and really looking forward to sort of, you know, taking it out there into the market. That's right. No, big opportunity. I'm excited to dig into it and get into some more details. I think my audience is sophisticated enough to, to understand the, the mechanics of a, of a private equity firm. You know, you've got the cap raise underway. How about deal flow? Do you have any, any assets you've targeted already? I don't want to get into too much detail about that, but yes, we're looking at things. We're particularly interested in energy services as one area. So just to sort of, I guess, um, round out the conversation about the private equity. So this this fund is not looking at assets as such. It's looking at businesses. So, you know, when we talk about things like um, healthier lives, we're looking at businesses that are looking at physical and mental health outcomes and, you know, preventative or um you know, curative things to help with that. We're not looking at, you know, a hospital or an asset that would sit alongside that. It's very much a business-based um, approach, which sort of is different from what others are, are doing in the market. So hence the, the comment about we don't think that there's anything in the market at the moment that fits this space. And so the things that we're looking at are in the renewable services space and also um, we're looking at... Uh, products that might sit in the healthier life space. We've looked at others that don't really fit in terms of the investment criteria and the and the applicability to the fund. And as you would imagine, there's quite a few that have come through that have been not appropriate 
for the fund. So as I said, we're running a sort of a parallel process of deal flow and capital raising at the same time. When you make the decision to launch a fund in Australia, but you've you've done it in partnership with Bridges and brought that name over, what other benefits does that bring, having, having them alongside you? That's very huge. Um, they're actually a, a small equity holder in the fund. So they are, you know, totally aligned with its success. And I probably should actually talk about my partners in the fund because um, I haven't really done justice to them. Um, so uh, David Bennett is one of them. We worked together on the wholesaler. Uh, he used to lead um, debt capital markets at Macquarie and was the treasurer of Macquarie for quite a period and has been involved in CIFR and, and he was also um, involved with CSI. So the Centre for Social Impact, he's on the board of um, Palisade, Palisade Impact and Aquashore and now um, the Export Finance, Export Finance Australia, he's Deputy Chair of that. So he comes with a lot of experience. Peter Murphy, many people, many of your listeners would know, used to be the CEO of Christian Super. So he was one of the first people to sort of bring impact into Australia through that and very experienced in the area. And then Paul Evans has 30 years of private equity experience, so he's the hard-headed commercial private equity guy in the mix. And then finally, we've got Sabina Furutolo, who I mentioned earlier, who we work together at Impact Investing Australia, and she's very strong on the impact side. So she is um, now a part of the global impact team. So they have regular um, meetings at the moment we have access to all their templates, documentation processes, um, know-how. We've met with all the people in the Sustainable Growth Fund team. We've talked through all the different investments, the way they approached impact, the way they've um, thought about investments, the way they've knocked them out based on impact. I have a regular um, catch-up with Michelle every week. We're also hooked in with the business development department. We've got all their presentations, et cetera, et cetera. So, it's a very strong, cohesive relationship. I feel like I could pick up the phone anytime. We have a, a representative actually who runs the Evergreen Fund on our um, investment committee. That's the nature of the relationship. It's very, very strong. We feel like we've got all the know-how from them that we need, particularly around the impact piece. You know, the difference is that we are in Australia, they are in the UK. So it's the nuance of the Australian market where, you know, we obviously bring the skills. Um, but from an impact perspective, we can draw on them as we need to. That certainly helps you hit the ground running to have them backing you. And, and while I'm sure your investors will hold you to account on your impact uh, reporting and credentials, that will be really helped by uh, Bridges having the IMP model, which I dare say they use and, and has become really the, the status quo in the market. Tell us how you feel about that and maybe more broadly how the impact management project as a framework has grown, where you see it fits and how you feel about using it. So it's interesting actually because as part of my work with Impact Invest in Australia, so I had the opportunity actually to go and work with the GSG on a, um, a wholesaler report, which was a global report looking at wholesalers around the world. And Clara Barbie, who was the CEO of the Impact management project at that time was kind of going through the five dimensions of impact. We were talking a lot about that. And you may remember that the Impact Investing Australia actually did some of the market soundings for the IMP. So we, we've had a lot of experience with that already. 
um, which is, I guess, also one of the reasons for the Bridges thing. So I think it's a great framework. I've been advocating for it for a long time. I think what's different with the Bridges approach is that we actually have a sort of proprietary scoring mechanism which we use for investments. So the IMP is open to everyone, but the scoring mechanism is proprietary to Bridges. And so we have a way that we actually um, rank and score investments based on the dimensions of the IMP. So that's something that we will use in our process. It's been interesting, the evolution of the IMP structured network and where that's got to now in terms of the, I guess it's now the impact management platform, which has been taken over by the, the accounting bodies. I think that's a really important piece of market development because it's ultimately that standardisation of reporting is, is really key to actually, you know, to the, where we started in terms of driving the market to scale. If you have a consistency of reporting impact, it helps some um, investors to benchmark and that helps to, to create the data required to actually make um, the right investment decisions to, to direct capital towards impact. So it's a really important um, piece of the equation. And ultimately, it will, you know, no doubt help us in terms of our fund. But at this particular stage of development, we don't have that. And so it's a matter of working with the tools that we have, which is, you know, this proprietary scoring mechanism to identify what are the right KPIs for the impact of a particular organisation, scoring that against a broader framework and then making investment decisions on that basis. So I hope that sort of answers your question, but I think not yet on the platform in terms of actually having sort of mandated reporting, but, you know, once we get there, that's that's going to be absolutely fantastic. And I should say that Bridges has now, um, so the IMP team has now stepped out of the platform and gone back into bridges. So, okay. And so, the broader organisation, when you talk about the accounting structures, is that IFRS and, and the new IWSB? Yeah, yeah, and says, yeah, Sustainable Accounting Standards Board. And then, if if SASB and IFRS have come together to try and do the accounting standards around the impact piece. Well, that's it. And you know, for so long, the excuse was, "Oh, there's no agreed metrics and models and frameworks, let alone even definitions." But that's rapidly changing. There is a status quo now. There are some basic frameworks that everybody can plug into. So those excuses are, are, are rapidly running out. And as you say, um, nothing mandated yet. But, but when that arrives, that really will be a big shift. And so, you know, shifting back to the organisation and, and, and your next steps, who are the investors you're targeting? Is it, is it pushing to that insto level? Are you looking at super funds? So we're doing both the people, the real movers in this space, uh, you know, the family offices and foundations have always been, you know, the people that have been the most supportive of the impact investing market. So, you know, we see them as really important as potential investors. Uh, we'd also love to get some super funds if we can. And people have gone before us and tried that. It's not easy, but it's, you know, somewhere that we will continue to pursue. And obviously, you know, the other key place is the wealth advisors. So we're sort of looking in all spheres of potential investors. You know, as I said, we think the family offices are probably the most likely space for the first iteration of the fund. That's right. And, and, and this all comes back to this drive for scale and to take impact investment broader. And that has huge potential for increasing these outcomes, these positive outcomes. But of course, it brings a lot of challenges. And, and we often hear this term scaling with integrity and how much of a challenge that will be. And this is a question that, that straddles the two sides of things we've talked about with you today, the, the policy and the catalytic change side, and then the organisational side in Bridges. 
where do you feel we're at with this concept of scaling with integrity? Are you worried about impact washing? Are there any factors that you think we need to ensure it can grow and we can maintain these positive outcomes? I mean, it's something that I think plays on many people's minds that we're going to end up with this notion of impact washing. I think that's where things like the, you know, what we just talked about before with the data and the standardisation of reporting is really important. You know, it becomes very clear very early um, if you have transparency of, of metrics, if you have transparency of portfolios, where that impact is actually not being pursued. What is really also interesting in this space and, you know, to the point about the INP structured network, what also came out of that was the SGG impact standards. That's obviously going through a process led by Fabian Michaud as the director of that. So she, you know, she's been writing those standards. They will um, have accreditation around the processes that different fund managers are adopting to make sure that they do maintain that integrity of impact. Um, and also the processes that, you know, different corporates are adopting. So as I'm sure you know, there's different standards for different types of investors. So there's private equity standards, there's bond standards, there's enterprise standards, there will be public equity standards as well, public market standards. And that adherence to process is also going to be really key in ensuring some of this integrity. So I think the combination of transparency data and potentially process accreditation is going to be really important in making sure that we do not just have, you know, people being an impact fund without authenticity of impact. And obviously the reporting that goes along with that, you know, the Bridges reporting, for example, is um, phenomenal in terms of the detail into which it goes around the impact. If you're not getting that, then I think you also have to question the integrity of um, the process. For sure. For sure. And look, I do need to wrap this up. We've been speaking for a long time. It's been great. But um, a couple more questions. You know, we're at the start of 2022. Excited to have you as, as my first guest for the year. I'd love to get a feel for, for where you see this space. Looking forward, perhaps a little philosophically, you know, there's this well-worn cliche that impact investing will, will have achieved its goals when we no longer need to use the term, when all investors measure their impact. How do you see this evolution, you know, right now, you've been, you've been in this space for a decade or so. Do you still hold out that hope? Is there a bit more nuance there? How are you seeing it? I do hold out hope because I think, you know, if anything, I think we're seeing more and more momentum. And I think the, the climate element has been a real trigger in terms of driving that because people, people are really thinking about the risk element. I think if you're talking about it from the perspective of, a return element, people don't always see the opportunity. But when you start talking about it from the perspective of risk and portfolio protection, people have to, you know, can't be ignored. So that's, I think, where climate has has sort of played in recent times. I think the key, you know, is what we talked about before is the data. Because unless you can, particularly when you go into the public markets domain, so as a private equity investor, um, particularly one that's taking significant holdings, which is, you know, what, what we'll do is bridges, you've got, I guess, more control over what gets reported back to you by the by your investee companies. In a public market context, people have very little control over that. So that means that, you know, in order to actually make comparisons between companies, there has to be some degree of, you know, standardisation and potentially mandating of data requirements so that everybody's sort of put on an equal playing field and the reporting becomes compulsory. 
with which to make those sort of investment decisions. So I think that's the next critical piece because once we have that, we're more positioned to be able to actually make those comparisons and start to do more public markets in, you know, impact investing, which will mean that this becomes more mainstream. I mean, people like Pendle's already got a product that, that does that, but I think a lot of people are seeing public equities as the nut to crack. You know, Malior is trying, but it's really, really challenging um, without the data, but also within the universe of the companies that you're trying to select. And depending on what your impact criteria are, that can actually be very, very difficult to actually be pulling out the companies that are doing the right thing. So it's still going to take time across different asset classes. I think as we started, you know, the conversation with progress could be helped by, you know, government supporting funds trying to do more of this stuff. Um, I think there are natural places that it's easy to do, like some of the physical assets, but, you know, there's still going to be challenges for a while in different asset classes like public, public equities. So that's kind of a summary. You know, if we started talking about public equities, we'd be here for another hour. But um, I, I did actually, I, I spent the final four episodes of this podcast in, in 2021 talking to four managers who are building impact funds with public market equities. So if anybody wants to, to wind back the four previous to this one, cover it all. But look, thank you for that, Sally. My last question, and it's one that, that everybody enjoys, and that's a book recommendation. I'd love to get a feel for a book that sort of influenced you in your career or, or in this industry, or even if it's just a, a summer read that's on the bedside table. So one of my favourite books of all time, which I think I won't say influenced me to get into impact investing, but is quite profound in the message of the actual book, and it's called The Elegance of the Hedgehog. It's about the way that people see people based on what they look like and their standing in life, which does not go to who the person actually is. The reason I love that book is because I think that's actually often what happens in the world, that people just make assumptions about, you know, who people are because of, you know, if they happen to have this job or they happen to look like this or whatever, as opposed to actually taking the time to understand who they really are. There's a lesson in that for all of us, basically. So I would recommend reading that book. Very good. Oh, thank you, Sally. That's a, a great way to end it. I think I think that's right. I think that's what sort of drives a lot of people to this, this corner of the, the financial world is, you know, trying to bring empathy and trying to bring a more nuanced worldview um, to this piece. And, and I think that speaks to that. So thank you. And look, I've taken lots of your time today. I really do appreciate it. All the best with Bridges and uh, hopefully we can stay in touch. Thanks, Tom. The information in this podcast is not intended as financial advice. If there has been mention of financial products, it should not be taken as a recommendation and it shouldn't be relied upon. It does not take into account the investment objectives, financial situation or the particular needs of any potential investor. You should consider obtaining independent advice before making any financial decisions. If you're in Australia, you can visit moneysmart.gov.au for more details.